The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. The Nasdaq dips deeper into correction territory after disappointing earnings and high treasury yields take the wind out of the tech sector. While the US economy runs hot, growing at its quickest pace in almost two years. Advertising sales surge at Amazon. Profits at the e-commerce giant nearly triple, sending shares 5% higher after hours. CEO Andy Yashi says he's excited about the deals ahead. Companies have moved more slowly in an uncertain economy in 2023 to complete deals. But we're seeing the pace and volume of closed deals pick up, and we're encouraged by the strong last couple of months of new deals signed. Policy support helping prop up profits at China's biggest industrial firms, whilst the country's foreign minister Wang Yi kicks off a long-anticipated visit to Washington, hoping to improve ties between the world's largest economies. And the European Central Bank, well, it did it. It snapped its streak of 10 straight rate hikes, hitting pause and acknowledging that the euro area is teetering on the brink of recession. But the President Christine Lagarde pushes back against any immediate expectations of a rate cut. After 10 successive hikes, uh, now is not the time for forward guidance. Now is the time to really stick to our data dependency knitting. France prepares for a titanic and colossal battle between South Africa and New Zealand for the Rugby World Cup Final 2023. We speak to the president of the organizing committee, Sancha Standby, then that's happening at 9.45 CET. No doubt there's been a reversal for major markets this week and earnings very much uh, one of the propellers here. We've had uh, the big tech uh, roll call for a lot of the major names that have been really behind the bounce earlier in the year. The AI story that took a lot of the market focus. Well, as the show and tell season continues for these big tech names, uh, the mega cap stocks, it's not been a positive trading week. And we're talking about even deeper correction territory for the Nasdaq now. Further slippage on the back of this week. The S&P yesterday briefly in correction territory too at its low point before managing to dig itself out of some of those lows. But it's still at this stage, you've got to say it was a, a fairly weak trading session that played out one and three quarters of a percent down for the Nasdaq, 1.2 off for the S&P 500 and the Dow trading down by three quarters of one percent. For the trading week, it does mean losses. And this is how we stand so far. This is a seven day picture. You can see we're down about four and a half percent for the seven days, 3.3 for the S&P and about one point uh, 1.9 for the Dow. So a fairly decent reversal taking place. And if you look at individual sectors as those numbers have rolled through from the mega cap stocks this week, the underperforming sector has been communication services. So a fairly negative trade. And of course, Amazon was the latest one out overnight. A little bit of mixed report in terms of what we saw. The consumer patterns yesterday, this was highlighted in the Amazon story, but also on GDP, that the resilience has been there from high street spenders. And as a result, you've still got uh, GDP growing close to 5% in the, the latest quarter, just 4.9%. So very strong rate at this stage. What that did to Treasuries, well, let's just take a look at the market. 
You can see there's been a lot of appetite and there's been a huge prop underneath this 10-year Treasury yield. But uh, in session, at least, we've come off a little bit. Uh, we're still shy of that 5% handle. And at the short end, we've actually managed to pull back a little bit closer to the 5% handle, 5.04 at this stage. The PCE, I think the inflation uh, pivot is what investors have been looking at. And uh, there may be a little bit of a release of some of the heat in this area. Uh, the market's uh, lower, lowering those forecuts. I mean, Goldman Sachs has its uh, PCE down by one basis point to 0.27%. The headline PCE estimate uh, by one basis point to 0.33% on these monthly numbers. So that's going to be quite key, I think, as we round out the week. Just what does that inflationary picture look like in the face of what is still a decent demand story? I want to take you to the dollar and uh, what we've seen as a result, a little bit of strength coming back into the mix for some of the risk on currencies. Sterling, Euro both propped up this morning, about a tenth of a percent on cable, 121.39. The one to watch, though, is dollar yen. You'll notice it's tipped past that 150 handle. The market's closely been watching this for intervention levels. And uh, as a result, uh, it is one that is very much in focus at this point. And don't forget next week, Bank of Japan, will it be adjusting some of those uh, yield targets? That's what the market's watching. To Asia quickly, this is how the Friday session's playing out. It's green. We've bounced out of some of that red ink that the markets endured yesterday. Japanese stocks in particular were down, you may recall, about 2% at one stage. 4.17 to the upside, 1.4% scooped up. Hong Kong stocks also very solid performance today, about 200 odd points in the green. Modestly upbeat for the Chinese market and Australia following suit. So a day in the green for the Asian region at this stage, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. Blockbuster figures you referenced there. Let's go for it again. The US economy grew by 4.9% in the third quarter. Huge figure, way topping expectations, defying warnings of a recession. Uh, and people, people talking about sl what kind of landing we're going to have. No landing on that data. Anyway, the reading was the fastest pace of growth in nearly two years. The Treasury Secretary, this is the, my point, Janet Yellen, she welcomed the print saying, yeah, it pointed to a soft landing. With all due respect, Madam Secretary, I disagree. It doesn't point to any kind of landing. How can you say 4.9% points to a soft landing? We can argue this one with everyone. I will, I promise. Uh, whilst adding that the recent rise in bond yields is a sign of confidence in the US economy. Again, Madam Secretary, I'll probably disagree. It's a sign of people concerned about the vast amount of supply coming on because you're running 6% deficits. Just my view, not CNBC's. Um, the Thursday GDP uh, will be followed by another key indicator for the US economy, personal consumption expenditures or PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. September's PCE figure is expected to come in at 3.5% on an annual basis or up 0.4% on a monthly basis, according to Dow Jones. Let's get to David Neuhauser, who is the CIO at Livermore Partners. Really good to see you today, David. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, look, I mean, look, I, I know that I'm just looking at the data but, and having a different view from many. I can't see a landing anywhere when you've got 4.9% growth in GDP. There's no landing. It's acceleration, isn't it, sir? Well, I wouldn't call it uh, acceleration, Steve. Um, I think what you called on it uh, earlier is true, with which you know it's hard to determine what kind of landing we're actually going to see because you have strong uh, headline GDP. That's being brought on by a very strong consumption but if you look a little bit deeper, um, it, it looks like this may be the last gas uh, of the consumer. It looks like credit is being used much more in the past several months. Uh, and, and I think as we look forward to start to look into 2024 numbers, 
you're going to see uh, some real softness start to occur. And as you just touched on, I mean, you brought up a great point. I mean, it's easy to see GDP, uh, you know, greatly above trend when, you know, the, the fiscal imbalances of the government with, um, you know, 120% of GDP, debt to GDP, or 6% budget deficits, you know, that's going to prop up uh, a lot of spending and that's going to help prop up the economy for a bit of time. So I think that's what we're seeing today. Um, but I also think we're just in a world of risk right now as well. So it's going to get a lot uh, more dire, I think, as we look forward. And, and we'll, we'll go for that. But David, it's not looking dire at the moment. And this is what is defying expectations. I don't think any of us out there, whether we're bulls, bears, transitionary inflation or longer term structural inflation, I don't think any of us can say that we would have expected the economy to be performing at nearly 5%, in fact, 5% once you've taken the decimal out, 5% given the massive rate increases we've had as well. Why is the cumulative and lagged effect that everyone talks about, that the Fed talks about, that Powell talks about, why is it taking so long, David? You know, I think it actually goes back to 2021. Um, you know, you and I had a discussion back then uh, my viewpoint from Livermore and our fund was that uh, inflation is now structurally embedded in our economy, uh, and and we're going to see that as a go forward basis. And I think that's actually true today. So I think ultimately you're going to see this sort of stagflationary environment uh, t- uh, play out for a bit of time. Rates are rising faster due to higher inflation from brought on from 2021. That created a wealth effect. That created tremendous uh, liquidity in M2 money supply. Um, and, and that creates a, a lot of wealth. And of course, since then, you saw inflation go higher. You saw the labor market get much tighter. And I think it just takes time where the Fed has had to ratchet up um, the Fed funds rate dramatically, five over 500 bips at this point. And it just takes time for that to work through the system and for people to cut out the spending. And to me, that's, you know, I thought like you, it was going to happen much sooner into 2020, 22, and that didn't occur, but it looks like um, more than likely it's going to bleed into the end of here, 23 and going into 24 at this point. David, can I ask you about the the bond route that we've seen? The markets have been jumpy around the data. We got through the the growth numbers yesterday, but if you look at the, the bond route at this point, how dangerous is that for equities? I think it's tremendously um, uh, dangerous at this point. Like I said, I think we're in this world of risk where for you know almost 15 years, you had uh, a bond market that was in a bull, uh, bull market and you had rates negative for several, several years. And that dynamic fed through in throughout the global economy where you know housing prices were affordable, autos were affordable, and people were um, subjected to um, an environment and a lifestyle, I should say, which uh, had much lower uh, interest rates. I think that has changed obviously in a 180 here. And I think that is gonna cause a lot of the pain um, moving forward in terms of the economy. So I think what you're seeing now with the bond market is, you know, bond vigilantes are back in vogue, uh, back from the 80s, back from the dead. And I think they're leading the market today. It's not the Fed anymore. And as you look at sort of this fiscal imbalances happening, it's giving a lot of ammunition to the bond bearers. And thus, you know, you're seeing interest rates arise 
much further than expected. And I think that's going to cause a lot of pressure on the credit markets. It's going to cause a lot of pressure on the consumer going forward and even corporations when there's a lot of a debt refinancing going on as well. So I think ultimately that would, will lead to the downtrend of um, the economy and also it's going to hurt the stock market and you're starting to see that today. Yeah, I do take your point that the bond vigilantes have woken up in a big way. David, I want to get to some of your calls. You say you remain invested in luxury. You like your oil and gold trades at this point, And you say avoid the banks. Just run us through those exposures. Yeah, so our hedge fund, of course, is special situation. So Livermore Partners is set up where, you know, I'm looking at dynamics in the short term and medium term, of course, to make money. You know, we've been looking at sort of the stagflationary environment going to take hold. You look back at the 1970s. The best uh, outperformance was in things like oil and gold and hard assets that kept up with inflation. Um, and there was really good, uh, you know, still potential for returns on capital. So I think oil is the best place to be. You have a world of risk, like I keep describing. Uh, we have the potential for world war on a global scale, which causes tremendous uncertainty um, over the economics. And, and therefore, oil is you know, uh, on pace to break $100 a barrel for Brent. Um, I think gold is is one of those areas that people go when it's risk off. Um, and I think those are areas we really like. The luxury sector, you think to yourself, well, why would I like luxury if I think markets are going to get weaker? It's going back to what Steve suggested, which is it's the high end. It's almost like that ultra wealthy consumer they're still not going to be greatly impacted by a slowing stagflationary environment. They still have enough income, enough wealth, and, and most likely have assets in the front end of the curve, right? Making 5% plus. So their income streams are going to be pretty uh, tight and strong. And their lifestyles are going to be something they're going to continue to fund. And I think the best and brightest of the market, things like Louis Vuitton, things like Ferrari, uh, and even we have a position now in Aston Martin, are going to be the go-tos for potential. Uh, Aston Martin and Burberry are two things I think are more turnaround plays for Livermore, um, where of course Ferrari has done really, really well. Um, and then on, on the last part you mentioned with banks, I mean, banks I think are just still going to be in for a world of hurt on a go-forward basis if you start to see the economy slow and yet have these rates stay strong at the front end because they're held to maturity books are, as you know, deeply underwater and that could ultimately affect their tangible book value at some point in time. David, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to hear your thoughts on what is an incredibly complex market at the moment. David Niehaus with us, yeah, sure. CIO at Livermore Partners. And a quick look at Amazon shares. They are now trading higher in extended trade after the company posted a top and bottom line beat for the third quarter, driven by stronger than expected sales and its cost-cutting measures. Revenue at Amazon Web Services came in just shy of projections, but growth was faster than previous quarters at 12%. The CEO, Andy Jassy, said the outlook for the cloud business is stabilising. AWS's year-over-year -year growth rate continued to stabilise in Q3. While we still saw elevated cost optimization relative to a year ago, it's continued to attenuate as more companies transition to deploying net new workloads. Companies have moved more slowly in an uncertain economy in 2023 to complete deals, but we're seeing the pace and volume of closed deals pick up, and we're encouraged by the strong last couple of months of new deals signed. For perspective, we signed several new deals in September with an effective date in October that won't show up in any gap reported number for Q3.
Okay, coming up on the show, the ECB calls a halt to its streak of rate hikes. But when could the first cut come? Maybe a bit ambitious to talk about it yet, but anyway, we'll discuss after the break. Also on the show, European leaders gathering with the conflict in Israel at the top of the agenda. We'll cross live to Brussels later this hour. And Covestro flags full-year profit will likely be at the lower end of its target range. We'll be out to Leverkusen to speak to the CEO of the German chemicals group, Markus Steilemann. That's coming up at 8.15 local time, 9.15 CET. That is first on CNBC. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. The European Central Bank, uh, no surprise to any of you really though, has broken its streak of 10 consecutive rate hikes, keeping its benchmark rates on hold and the deposit rate sitting at a record high of 4%. This as inflation in the euro area has more than halved over the past 12 months with the economy slowing also to the extent that large parts of the bloc now find themselves teetering on the brink of recession. ECB President Christine Lagarde said the decision to stand pat was unanimous amongst governing council members, but stressed this does not mean any further hikes can be completely ruled out. In response to CNBC's question over, I think it must be an iron Annette, must have been, uh, Annette's question over what expectations should be for an eventual rate cut, Lagarde pushed back, saying the action is not even under discussion. Even having a discussion on cut is totally, totally premature. For the moment, what we are saying is that we have to be steady, we have to hold. This is the decision of today. We are holding. Great question from Aneta there. Uh, Lagarde also said the ECB was closely examining the economic fallout from the escalating conflict between Israel and Hamas. We are monitoring the situation. We are very attentive to the economic consequences that that could have, whether in terms of direct or indirect impact on energy prices or the level of confidence that economic actors uh, will continue to display. Shares in Siemens Energy sold off sharply in Thursday's session, plunging 39% after the company confirmed reports it's in talks with Berlin over government guarantees. This is the company faces quality problems at its wind turbine unit Gamesa, resulting in billions of related losses. Siemens Energy did not comment on the details of a potential package. However, German media reports the company is seeking some 15 billion euros in guarantees, the first tranche of which up to 10 billion euros would see Berlin assume 80% of liability, with banks taking on the remaining 20. Siemens, meanwhile, is reportedly being asked to guarantee a second tranche of some 5 billion euros.
Equinor has posted a net income of $2.5 billion in the third quarter, topping estimates, but coming in sharply lower from last year, which the Norwegian Energy Group said was due to the extraordinary gas prices in 2022. Anders Opadell joins us now, the CEO of Equinor. Anders, thank you very much for joining us. Just a, a quick glance at the numbers first up. You pointed to strong earnings, cash flow from operations, high oil production and strong results from sales and trading. Just how is this year unfolding as you look at the latest quarter? Uh, good morning. Yes, uh, an- another solid uh, quarter results from Equinor. We, of course, we have uh, different gas prices uh, this quarter than we had uh, last uh, last year, which were extraordinary high gas prices. But we have had three uh, very solid quarters behind us uh, during this year. And the cash flow from operation uh, year to date after tax is 17 billion US uh, dollar. And this has enabled us uh, to really be competitive in shareholder distribution, where we continue with our highly competitive shareholder distribution, totaling to also 17 billion US dollar for uh, the, the 2023. And it's just on the gas price. I mean, there is a view we're still not out of the woods when it comes to energy security at this stage. And we know in the past 24 months or so, we've seen enormous fluctuations because of that energy security story. What are you banking on when it comes to the gas price? Do you think there's going to be another flare up in price action? Well, when it comes to the gas uh, prices going forward, you know, we think it will be quite volatile. Uh, Europe uh, is in a better position this winter, uh, entering this winter than last winter because of the high gas storage. But uh, when it really comes to uh, the gas prices, it will be dependent on the weather. It will be dependent on the, 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 the temperature, the heating demand, but also the amount of uh, renewables coming into the energy mix uh, with uh, with uh, lo- uh, kind of a lot of rain and a lot of wind. There will be a lot of renewables, and that will take the demand for gas uh, down. So weather will be a very, very dependent factor. In addition, uh, Europe is now totally dependent on import of energy. So the fight of energy between Asia and Europe would really play a role and any disruption in LNG supply would also affect the, the market. So it is a nervous market. We saw that uh, with the Baltic connector uh, when that was stopped. We saw that uh, also when the, when the Middle East crisis started that the gas prices immediately reacted uh, to this. Anders, um, I got um, collared by an oil trader, an old friend of mine from when I used to be a derivatives trader uh, down at Canary Wharf the other day. And he said, why is the EU so hypocritical about its energy security? And I only mention this because you're talking about uh, you're contributing to European energy security. Yes, gas supplies are down, but actually EU purchases of Russian LNG are up 40 percent compared with pre-war levels. And he was saying, why aren't people talking about this? Are European politicians just stunning hypocrites, sir? Well, that's not up to me to judge. You know, our focus has always been that what we can do to ensure that Europe and UK has enough, they have enough gas. Uh, That's why we increased the production last year with 11%. uh, And uh, we continue to maintain high production from from gas. And we'll continue to do that uh, during uh, the the winter time. So we are really focusing on what we can do in, in, in this situation. But as I said, Europe is totally dependent on importing of LNG now. And we also see that uh, European countries are putting forward longer contracts. Uh, The recent contract uh, into France and Holland from uh, Qatar with LNG all up to 2052. So this really demonstrates the need for gas in the longer run for energy security to Europe. And I appreciate your very diplomatic answer there, Anders. Let me just phrase a slightly different question as well. 
Is it wrong, given our experience and the, and the huge mistake led by Frau Merkel of the last 20 years, for us to be buying so much LNG steel from a country that we're trying to put a squeeze on to end a horrific war in Europe? Well, I think what Europe really needs to focus on is to ensure that you diversify uh, their supply of, of gas and also making sure that investing in oil and gas uh, these days is actually important to ensure that uh, you're not dependent on certain countries in terms of, uh, of, of import. So we are investing particularly in Norway and UK to ensure that we are able to uh, deliver as much oil and gas we can to Europe. We see that both the oil we produce now go to Europe and also uh, all the gas uh, produced going, going to Europe. So that's, uh, that's our focus. Anders, um, actually, I don't know if you're going to go. Very quick question, first of all. Are you going down to COP28 in Abu Dhabi uh, in November, December? I'm planning to do so, yes. Fabulous. Well, look, can, I, can we have a chat in person for a start? There you go. There's my pitch. But actually, the real question is, <laughs> uh, that, that's my first point. Uh, and my second point is, this is the first time, and I was just over at Adipec as well. And, and if you were there, sir, I'm sorry I missed you. But I think it's the first time that big oil and gas, IECs, as you're all calling yourself now, the first time that IECs are in the tent as well. Huge opportunity, but huge risk for the sector uh, over at COP28. How, how's the pitch going to look, sir? Well, uh, you know, uh, as, as, as yourself, I was at Adipac, and I think, you know, really where, where we discussed, you know, the, our plans for the COP. And I think it's extremely important that this industry, no invited to the COP, really demonstrate that we are willing to contribute reducing the CO2 emission. Remember that while, while producing oil and gas, we are emitting CO2. And if we are able to reduce that, you know, that will have an impact uh, on the, on, on the, on the CO2, CO2 emission in, in the world. In Equinor, we have focused on this for many, many, many years and actually are producing uh, oil and gas with the lowest uh, carbon intensity in the industry. And I expect also that we are able to discuss this at, at COP28 and, uh, and, and we as an industry are able to set uh, targets uh, moving forward uh, in this way. And I'm more than happy to sit down with you down in uh, in Dubai. Those decarbonisation efforts, as important as the greening efforts, Anders, and if I could just turn the lens to, to some of the opportunities, I mean, it's been a landmark month, hasn't it, as we take a look at the largest wind farm project that you've got a joint venture with. Uh, this is Dogger Bank A. Just tell us how transformational this is going to be to the UK renewable story, how that's progressing, but also what you're seeing in terms of the supply chain cost inflation story as you push ahead with some of the renewable projects at this stage. Yeah, <clears throat> so Dogger Bank started up with first, first power this month. And, uh, you know, this will actually uh, produce uh, power to 5% of the UK power, power needs, uh, 6 million homes. So it's an ex extremely important for uh, UK. And it's also be transformational in terms of how much uh, power we produce uh, as a company. We have invested now for many, many years, and now we, the power production will, will really, really increase. Uh, we started this project actually in 2010 when we were awarded uh, the lease. So it takes some time to develop these type of projects. Uh, this project has been executed extremely well uh, in joint venture with SSE, as you as you mentioned. Uh, the offshore wind is in a challenging time at the moment, particularly the projects that are ahead of us due to higher inflation, due to crisis in the supplier industry, and that some of the, the contracts that developers have um, you know, uh, established with the government are not really giving the necessary returns. But I see a lot of actions among governments and suppliers and developers to really solve the 
this uh, little crisis and show that offshore wind will be a substantial part in the energy mix uh, in the future. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho weekdays on CNBC.